0: All right, guys, it's Easter! Woo! Yeah! We are here to do one thing and one thing only today, and that is to make much of Jesus, to celebrate Jesus. It is what we do every Sunday as a church. We are a church that is very much about Jesus. we like, forget a lot of the other stuff that we can get us distracted. Like, it's about Jesus here. So we do that every week. But man, Easter Sunday. Like, it is the Sunday where, like, it just brings it all into focus. And um Traditionally, I don't know if you can tell, we don't exactly do a lot of traditional things. But traditionally, Christians have, um, they have greeted each other with a, with a greeting on, on Easter. Uh, like for, throughout church history, there's this call and response greeting where one person says, he is risen, and the other person says, he is risen indeed. So we're going we're gonna to practice that this morning. You guys ready? You should be more awake than the first service, and they did pretty good. So, you, you know, you ready? He is risen! Okay, hey? angry about? No, I'm just kidding. No, that's great. That's great. Hey, he is risen indeed. You know, um, I, I, I used to I used to be part of a church. You know, before we planted Hope Community, where like people would go around saying that on Easter Sunday, and it's always kind of like he's risen, he's risen indeed, right? Like it's kind of it's kind of ho hum. Because I think sometimes like the significance of that statement can be lost on us. The significance of the reality that like no Jesus actually is alive. Like right here, right now, he is. Alive, He is risen. Um, and, and you know, it's easy for that to, to just lose its significance. If, you, if you're here watching and you are a Christian or a follower of Jesus, if we're being honest, it can just kind of become trite, like that's yeah, something that we say. And honestly, if you're here or watching and you're skeptical, maybe you're not a Christian, it can just sound like religious superstition. I'm just, like, just call it what it is. If you're not a follower of Jesus, to believe that a guy walked on earth who was God in the flesh and he died and he rose from the dead, that's crazy talk. Until you believe it, then you're like, it's not that crazy. And so, man, what I want to do in our time together this morning is I want us to recapture the significance of that idea that he has risen and to understand, like, the power of that and why that matters and why that changes everything. But for us to, to kind of get there, I want us to go back to the moments just after the crucifixion of Jesus and ask ourselves one really, really important question. What happened? Like, what happened after the crucifixion? Because when, when, when Jesus is crucified, when he breathes his last breath, in that moment, there is not one single Christian. There are no believers. There is no Christianity. There is no faith. There is no, like, there is no movement for them to continue. Like, come on, guys, we'll do it. Like, like no, when, when, when he was dead, it was over. It was over. All that were left, you know, after he, he had died, there was a, a few dozen kind of scattered followers who were afraid who were terrified, who were heartbroken, who were hurting, who were overwhelmed, who were confused. They had just watched their religious leaders conspire with their greatest enemy, the Roman Empire, to come together to put to death the best person that they had ever known, to put to death their teacher, to put to death on a personal level, probably their closest friend, someone who they thought, like, no, this is not, not how this is supposed to go. In fact, over the course of three years with his followers, his followers had come to believe some pretty incredible things about Jesus because they were there and they, had, they saw him heal people. They saw him perform miracles. They had seen the way that Jesus interacted with and invited in and welcomed in the outcast and the stranger and the people in that society whose society said, you're worthless, we don't want you. Jesus said, come follow me, come be a part of my family. They had heard Jesus teach on love and forgiveness and generosity. They'd heard him teach about righteousness and justice. They'd heard him proclaim, the kingdom of heaven is here. They'd come to believe that he was, to the Jewish people, what they call their Messiah, their their king, their anointed one, the promised one, literally God's final king who was going to rule and reign and justice and righteousness and love forever. They'd come to believe all that. And in a moment, it was gone. He was dead. It was done. And they were devastated. And that, that is the scene as Jesus breathes his last breath. Hopeless. Got that in your minds? Okay. It's a happy way to start the Easter message, right? I want us to fast forward 30 years in history from that point. 30 years the year is 64 AD, and we're going to leave the kind of backwater of, of Judea, uh, and we're going to head to what is like the, the center of the known world at the time. Like we're going to go to the, the capital city of the empire. We're going to the city of Rome, 64 AD. There's an emperor at the time, his name is Nero, maybe you've heard of Nero, um, bit of a crazy man, okay? Like, he was uh, very brutal, uh, allegedly, and with, you know, kind of good evidence. He's murdered, or had murdered several of his family members, Um, and one of the things he really becomes known for is burning the city of Rome, and now historians debate, did he actually burn it? Did he not burn it? How did the fire get started? Um, But people at the time thought, I think Nero might have done this, then this massive fire breaks out in 64 AD where like two-thirds of the city is burned. Uh, it just massive devastation. The fire burns for six days and people are starting to whisper, I think Nero did that to like clear space for his new palace or whatever. And Nero needs a fall guy. And the Roman senator and historian Tacitus tells us of the fall guy that he picks. Tacitus says this in his annals. Consequently, whoop, Consequently, that's the wrong part. Hold on, go. This is real, y'all. There it is. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilatus, in a most, and I love, this is, this is Tacitus' description of Christianity and Christian faith. A most mischievous superstition I don't know if Tacitus had a mustache, but if he did, he's like twirling it there, right? Like, it's a, mis- the most mischievous superstition broke out. This was, this was Tacitus' description of Christianity. It's a mischievous superstition. It's mischievous, it's kind of, it's, it's bad, it's, it's, a little, it's a little evil, it's a little, ooh, what's going on there? And it's a superstition. It's crazy, it's crazy. This is Tacitus writing in like the early first century, or excuse me, early second century, end of the first century, end of the second century, early 100s. And he's saying about Christianity what a lot of people think about it today. It's a mischievous superstition. It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. This mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things, he has such nice things to say about Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. And then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Not so much for the crime of firing the city. So it's like, eh, actually, they, they didn't light the fire. But as of hatred against mankind, Nero just didn't like them. And mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or they were nailed to crosses, or they were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. And Nero offered his gardens for the spectacle. He was exhibiting a show in the circus, while well, he mingled with the people in the dress of a charioteer or stood aloft on a car. You know, this is all taking place in, in what's known as Nero's circus, this kind of open air arena, uh, where different things were held, chariot races, and so in this open air arena at this time, Nero's like, let's let's have ourselves some good old Christian killing, and we'll have him crucified and eaten by animals and lit on fire uh, while we enjoy that show. Uh hundreds maybe thousands of christians died in, in nero's circus and one really really famous one was crucified there actually crucified upside down tradition tells us and that was the apostle peter died in nero's circus and, and so the, like this crazy thing happens 30 years prior to this jesus dies now 30 years after this nero blames the christians for the burning of rome wait a minute it's like i thought we killed their leader i thought we put an end to that how are there so many of them in Rome? This is, this is crazy. We, we we're just saying, like, our world is so small now in terms of distances and space. I mean, it's always been the same size, but you know you know what I'm saying. Rome is 2,500 miles away from Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was crucified. How, within 30 years, w- with, without internet or phone or social media or any modern versions of transportation, how are there so many Christians now living in the city of Rome that there's enough of them there and they're well-known enough that Nero can point at them and say, they started the fire. What happened? How do we get there? How do we get from crucified Jewish wannabe rabbi to that? Let's fast forward another 30 years. Fast forward another 30 years It's the year 326. There's a new emperor on the scene. He's much kinder to Christians. His name is Constantine. Maybe you've heard of Constantine. Constantine makes the practice of Christianity legal. Constantine famously becomes a Christian. And again, there's debate whether he was sincere in that or if it was a political tool. That's not the point. Uh, But Constantine is very pro-Christian. And in 326 AD, he says, you know that spot over there that used to be Nero's Circus? It's kind of in ruins right now. We're gonna go ahead and tear that down. And and over the site of Nero's Circus, we are going to build what is called St. Peter's Basilica as a monument to the Christians who died in the circus and as a monument to the Apostle Peter who has died and who's buried there. How does that happen? Let's fast forward again, okay? We're not going to go through all of history, I promise. We'll fast forward all the way to today. There still is no Nero Circus. St. Peter's Basilica still stands. It was rebuilt in the 16th century, even bigger and grander than it was before. Over the site of Nero Circus now stands the largest church in the world. The Roman Empire is no more. The Roman Empire was thought to be the eternal empire. It was supposed to go on forever and ever and ever. It is gone. And the city of Rome, the city of Rome is filled with crosses. But they're no longer crosses that represent Roman crucifixion and Roman power and violence and brutality. The city of Rome is full of crosses and it represents one single crucifixion, the crucifixion of Jesus and his power over sin and death. Fast forward to today, And over one-third of the world's population claims to follow this crucified Jewish rabbi. And if that was all the information that we had, right? And all of that is historically verifiable. None of that is, like, in the Bible. That's just history books. If that's all the information we had, if we didn't know anything else, we would have to stop and ask the question, what the heck happened? How do we go from crucified rebel rabbi and scared and scattered followers to what we see today? Certainly something has to go in between Jesus died and what we've seen throughout history. And that's something that happened is why we're here. That's something that happened is what, is what Easter is about. It is about the resurrection of Jesus. He was crucified, but it didn't stick. He came back from the dead. Clearly, there's more to the story. I want to look at how Luke tells us that more of the story. Luke's one of the gospel writers, so we got four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all tell uh, the, the account of the life of Jesus from different angles with different details. Luke brings us uh, his account uh, in a unique way, as Luke is a first-century doctor. Luke is also a very, very good historian. Scholars will look at Luke's work and say, you know what? You know, Kind of faith aside, Luke does a great job with history in terms of facts and details and dates and events and specifics. And so Luke puts together an orderly account. He talks to the eyewitnesses. He investigates these things. He says, here's what happened. When it comes to the events after the death of Jesus, Luke says, this is what happens. But on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb bringing the spices they had prepared. So it's the first day of the week and the they that he's talking about is a group of women that have made their way to the tomb. And I love the detail. He says it's very early in the morning on the first day of the week. Uh, So the first day of the week is Sunday. This is why Christians traditionally have gathered on Sunday to celebrate Jesus because it's the day of his resurrection. By the way, I don't know how old I was until I realized that Sunday is not technically the weekend. Anybody else? Was this just me? As a kid, I was like, Sunday's on the weekend. Why is it on the front of the calendar? It never made sense until like, I don't know, a year or two ago, probably <laughs> longer than that. But it's like, oh, Sunday's the first day of the week. So it's early Sunday morning. And Luke gives us this detail of it being very early. Literally, it's the, the deep dawn or the extreme dawn of the morning. The sun is maybe just barely starting to come up. Where you're just barely able to see. It would have been the final watch of the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., This is the first opportunity that the women would have to go to the tomb. Jesus is crucified on Friday. The Jewish day starts at sundown, and so Friday night, it's now now into what's the Sabbath. So from Friday night to Saturday night is Sabbath. So Jesus is crucified on Friday. They hurriedly put him into the tomb before the Sabbath begins. And then for the rest of that day, for all of Saturday, the Jewish people have to rest. And can you imagine like being in this group of women, being the rest of the disciples, after everything that had happened, you watched this mob come after Jesus, you watch him crucified, and you see him put him in the, in the tomb, and then you can't do anything except sit and think about it for a day. Like, like the, the women, they want to go, they want to pay the respects, they want to give him a proper burial, but they can't, and they just sit there all day long during the Sabbath just thinking about their friend, thinking about what had happened, reflecting on the past three years, realizing that it's completely over And then it's nighttime on Saturday night, and it would have been dark and dangerous to go. So as soon as they have an opportunity early in the morning, but imagine it was a night without much sleep, they get up and they head to the tomb. And they go to the tomb with a purpose. And these are the things that sometimes we we kind of read past. It's like, what's their purpose in going? They went, and they brought spices. The reason that they brought spices is because what they went expecting to find. None of the women expected to find a resurrected Jesus. You know, the, the morning of the first resurrection, they're not like this is great. We're gonna go. We're gonna go find Jesus. We're gonna kick it because he's alive. No, they're going with spices, because they're expecting to find a dead and decaying body. They're expecting to find Jesus dead, as he was crucified and buried. Very quickly put into the tomb on Friday night because it was about to be Sabbath and they couldn't work, so they 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 rushed kind of the burial. And so these women are going at the, the first opportunity they have to go. Like, hey, we are going to give Jesus a proper burial. We're gonna pay our respects. We're gonna do this the right way. They show up expecting to find Jesus dead in the tomb in a very real way. The women at the tomb are the first skeptics to be convinced of the resurrection of Jesus. They're the first ones to go, I don't think this is true, and now I do. That skepticism is actually a good thing, it's a beautiful thing, and it's a part of Christian faith. Working through those things, finding out what we believe and what is actually true. It's okay to be skeptical. We talk about this as a church uh, quite often, and I always want to mention it when I can, is that faith is not blind belief. Faith is not just saying, ah, just believe it regardless of anything else. The faith is saying, you know what, I trust in Jesus based on what I do know, based on what I have seen, based on what has happened in history, based on the evidence Jesus is who he claims to be. That's faith. It's not blind belief. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to ask questions. These women are going, they're, they're skeptics this beautiful thing about about Christian faith is that everybody who's a Christian now was a skeptic until they weren't, right? All of us, it's like, hey, until there was a time when I didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be, and now I do. There've been incredible stories throughout history of some of the most brilliant minds in history who have started off as atheists and agnostic and be like, "I'm I'm gonna research this, I'm gonna put an end to this, and they go, oh, shoot, I think it's true. And they begin following Jesus. That's the journey of these women on that morning. They're coming with spices to prepare the body, and they show up um, there at the tomb, and they find that the stone had been rolled away. And they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This detail is one of the most important ones in this text. That they don't find the body, the physical body of Jesus, because as crazy as it sounds, this is what we believe. This is what we believe resurrection is. It is physical resurrection. When we say Jesus rose from the dead, we're not saying metaphorically he rose from the dead. We're, we're not saying like spiritually. It's not like he was a phoenix rising from the ashes. No, like we think he actually rose from the dead. Physical resurrection, bodily resurrection. And, and, and here's why this is so huge. Because Christianity, the Christian faith, it is not about ideas and principles and philosophies. It's not about belief. It's not about, uh, it's not about morals and these different things. It is about a person. It is centered around the person of Jesus, and if that person is dead, if his body is in a tomb, Christianity is dead with him. It is the only thing that the foundation of of faith is built on is the resurrection, the death, and then resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus shows up and he's doing his ministry and he's teaching and he's healing people, all of his teaching revolved around him personally, about who he was. He never invited us to simply uh, follow his teaching or believe in his instructions. He said, no, follow me, believe in me. And when he died, that ended, that the body of Jesus was not there. They did not find the body and no one ever has. This is massive. In the first century, the, the, the Roman Empire, they weren't so fond of the Christians. They wanted to do away with Christianity. The, the Jewish temple, they did, weren't so fond of the Christians. They wanted to do away with Christianity. All it would have taken in the first century was for someone to pull out the bones or the rotting body of Jesus and say, here he is, shut up and go home already. But nobody could do it. And no one's been able to do it ever since. In fact, that is the only thing, that is the only thing that would undermine our faith is if someone could say, hey, here's Jesus, go home. At which point we'd say, Okay, close the doors because there's no point in being here if there's no resurrection. But Jesus, he he's alive, these women show up at the tomb and they're like, I, I love how Luke uh, Luke describes their, their state, because it's like, duh. <laughs> they were perplexed about this. They're, they're like, Huh, wonder what could have happened, right? Like th- these are these are the responses you expect. There's not this instant like, I think he's alive. No, they're just like, what's going on? What's happening? We're, we're so confused because they expect Jesus to do what dead people do, and that stay dead. John gives us a, a little bit more detail in his account, and he focuses in on one of the women in particular, a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene, uh, and she starts formulating like, a, a plan of, like, or a, a theory of, okay, what, what exactly happened? And her working theory, it honestly makes a lot of sense. Well, somebody had to have stolen the body. Right? Someone took the body of Jesus, they put him somewhere else, Jesus. I mean, he ticked off a lot of really powerful people, so maybe they didn't want to see him get a proper burial, so they, they took the body. I don't know. Like that's her working theory because it's resurrection doesn't make any sense until it does. They're perplexed about this. And as they're looking around the tomb trying to figure out what happened, uh, they get a, a, an interesting visitation. suddenly two men, these angels stood by them in dazzling clothes, bedazzled. They were bedazzled angels. And so the women were terrified. They bowed down to the ground. Here's one of the other things that's true about Easter it is beautiful, it is celebratory. It, it, it is, I mean, even, even today, this, this is like a rare Easter in Northeast Ohio. The sun is shining, and it's just like it just feels good, and we're happy. And we absolutely should be. But sometimes we get so happy at Easter that we forget that the context and the setting for Easter was terror, it was fear. It was confusion. It was pain. Again, these women and the, the greater group of disciples, the larger group of them, they saw Jesus just arrested, lied about, spit upon, beaten, crucified, and, and by, by default of them being his followers, there would have been a target on their backs as well. And so after the, the, the crucifixion, the disciples, they kind of go into hiding. There's so much fear and uncertainty and then these women, they, they show up, and, and you know, it's, it's dark. It's barely getting light, and, and so there's, there's probably some fear around that. And then they hear a noise and see something while they're in a tomb, okay? I don't care who you are. If, if, I, I don't. Guys, I don't even like, like walking through the cemetery at, at night. It's like, I don't want to be here. There have been times, I haven't in a long time, I'll admit this, when I would run. Again, it's been a long time. And I would run around, like I would go at night, and I would go up the road here, and then sometimes I'd cut through the cemetery, and I would run faster in the cemetery, okay? Because that was motivation, right? But it's like, th- th- these angels show up, and they're just like terrified. Before, before resurrection becomes real for them, it's nothing but Fear. It's nothing but hopelessness and confusion of what is going on. What is this possibly going to look like? Resurrection calms our fears. Resurrection brings peace. Because resurrection comes along and it stares at the worst thing that could happen to humans the most permanent thing that can happen to humans, the thing that throughout all of human history, different civilizations and people have been trying to find a solution to this and we've been fighting for this and we've been looking for this and that is, what do we do about the death problem? It's the most fearful and permanent thing that happens to us as humans. Resurrection comes along and says, that's now off the table for you. You have nothing to be afraid of because the worst thing that can happen, the most permanent thing that can happen has been defeated. It may be a, death may be a part of your story but it does not have to be the end of your story. It's so beautiful the way that Luke actually talks about you know, resurrection in this chapter, towards the end of uh, chapter 24 of Luke. We're not going to get there this morning. Um, but the first time that, that Jesus shows up uh, in, in the midst of his disciples as they're gathered together, the first words out of his mouth of the resurrected Jesus in Luke's gospel, peace be with you. You guys, I know you're terrified. You don't have to be anymore. I know you're scared. You don't have to be anymore. I know you are hurting. You don't have to anymore. I know you are suffering. You don't have to anymore. Peace be with you. I'm alive. It's going to be okay. Resurrection brings hope and brings freedom. It brings joy. It brings peace into our lives in a way that nothing else can. That is, that is a, that's the truth that's about to confront these women at the tomb. Now these men, these, these angels that look like men, they're going to speak, and they're going to give probably the best one-liner in the New Testament. As they, as they say, "Why are you looking for the living among the dead?" Mic drop. Right? Like I'm just—you don't need to say anything else. You're like, hey, you, you ladies, you, you know where you are, right? Yeah, we're at a tomb. You know what you find at tombs, right? Yeah, dead people at tombs. You're in the wrong place. Okay, you've got the wrong address. Jesus is not here. Dead people are here, but but Jesus is not a dead people. He's not a dead person anymore. He is alive. He's not here. Why do you look for the living among the dead? And here's, here's our phrase, he is not here. He is risen. He is risen. See, the, the, it, it, in this moment, when this, I can just imagine, like, as this is starting to process and click in their brains, as they're starting to think about this, I'm like, oh, my gosh, can it be true? We're going to see in a moment they start, like, thinking back on everything that Jesus had said and done. As this begins to settle in on them, a brand new, a new reality breaks into existence. Resurrection, when, if resurrection happened, it broke, in, it broke open a new reality. And not just for you personally and me personally, although that part is true. Like there is a new reality for you because of resurrection, for me because of resurrection, but it's bigger than that. It's not just a personal and individual thing. That when Jesus rose from the dead, the renewal and regeneration and restoration of all things began. The the earth, the cosmos, the universe itself is being redeemed and restored. All things are being made new. There is new creation breaking in. As Paul said in his communion devotion, you know, it's not just that we go to heaven when we die. Jesus came to, to bring heaven crashing into our current reality, that, that someday where this story is going is not disembodied us floating in the clouds. It is new creation, physical existence, us living in a physical creation that is beautiful, it is without sin, without shame, without any of that. And this is the moment that that happens. It starts unwinding. There's a, a restoration that begins to take place. The author, C.S. Lewis, puts it so beautifully and brilliantly in, in uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you've read the book or watched the movie, there's this moment, there's this scene where uh, the white witch has murdered the great lion, Aslan, who is like the Christ character in Narnia. All right, so what I was saying, C.S. Lewis, right, he comes along and there's this scene where Aslan dies and we're hopeless and it's like everyone is heartbroken. And Lucy and Susan, they start to walk away. They've been at the stone table and they finally go to walk away from the table. And as they're walking away, they, they feel this earthquake, and they hear this, this rumbling and this crack, and they turn around, and the stone table is broken, and there stands Aslan, and this is what he says. He says, When a willing victim, who had committed no treachery, was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack, and death itself would start working backwards. Death itself would start working backwards. The resurrection of Jesus, that's Aslan in a fictional world. The resurrection of Jesus is that in the real world. Death itself starts working backwards, that it is not the final end. And it's, again, it's not just some, we go to heaven when we die, but all things are being remade and renewed. This is that moment. This was the moment that was the death of death. This the moment that the great reversal was underway. He is risen. The angels continue to speak and say, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it's necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And then they remembered his words. And so Jesus had often spoke about his his death and and his resurrection, right? Sometimes he'd be very direct and talk about it. Other times he was a little cryptic about it. But over and over he had said, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise from the dead but it's not until after the resurrection that any of that makes sense to his disciples. This is a snapshot of the Christian faith. It does not make any sense without the resurrection. If you are a Christian or a follower of Jesus or considering that, you gotta know that Christianity makes no sense without, without the resurrection. It is the resurrection that reframes everything. Like it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't work. Like having the hope that we have to say, as dark as the world is, and as messed up as things are, and as much pain as we experience sometimes, to still go, there is hope. That makes no sense if all there is is this life. It makes no sense without the resurrection. That living this way and loving people and forgiving people, people who hate us, people who betray us, to say, you know what, you were loved and you were forgiven. That does not make any sense without the death and resurrection of Jesus following in the jesus way where he invites you and me says i want you to come follow me but you got to know if you're going to follow me you're going to have to pick up your cross and you're going to have to die to yourself you're going to have to die to to what you want and what you think is best you're going to have to no longer is your world going to be able to revolve around you and what you want you're gonna have to pick up your cross and die that does not make sense unless jesus took up his cross died and then rose because if he's calling us, like I got to get on my cross, but, like, his cross led to life, then I know if when I die to things so I can live for Christ, there's going to be greater life in me as well. Like, the resurrection makes this whole thing make sense. This begins to, to, to kind of settle in on them, In the moment that it settles in on them, what they were doing completely changes. Right? Because there, there's a direction that we're going, there's something that we're doing before we know Jesus, but once it's like, oh, I know him now, everything changes, and we get a snapshot of that. They're there to... to pay respects, right, to to bring the spices, to prepare Jesus' body, and then when resurrection becomes a reality, they're like, nope, and they go running back to the rest of the disciples. Returning from the tomb, they reported all of these things to the eleven and to the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things, but these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Again, this is, this is kind of another one of those, like, well, yeah, duh, moments. Of course these words seem like nonsense. I mean, put, put yourself there. I'd imagine that the women come running back from the tomb. They're probably out of breath trying to explain this. I'm like, you got where's the, the tomb? And the stone and the angels, he's risen. And you're like, what? Like, slow down, right? This is crazy talk. In, in the word, I, I love this. I love these details. I man. The word that, that Luke uses for nonsense, crazy talk, is actually a medical term. It's medical language used to, like, to talk about the wild talk of delirium. This is the only place in the New Testament where that, that word is used. And I'm like, of course it's a medical term because Luke's a doctor. And Luke's like, I'm trying to tell you like, what, what the best way to describe how these women sounded to the disciples. It's like a person was delirious. It's like, you ever see the videos where people have their wisdom teeth taken out? And they, like, they film them afterwards, and they are high as a kite. Okay, and they're just like, they're like telling you these stories and you're laughing. It's like, that's what the women sounded like to us. They just seemed like they were crazy because dead people stay dead. And also not just the story, but the fact that they were women took away from their credibility. And that culture at that time, the testimony of women was not considered to be reliable. You just kind of automatically go, yeah, whatever. You're not smart enough. You don't know these things. We don't have to believe you. Again, it's just this beautiful thing of all the gospel accounts say the first people that saw the resurrection to proclaim the risen Jesus are these women. Gospel writers have no reason to include that detail. It does not make their case stronger in their own context. It makes it worse, but that's what happened. It seems like nonsense. They're all all thinking these women are crazy, but one particular disciple thinks he's got to do something about it. Got to check it out. So Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. And so he went away amazed at what happened. Peter shows up and realizes the tomb is empty, and he doesn't just go, oh, okay. He doesn't go, oh, I I believe this now. The women were right. Like, it it doesn't just, it doesn't just elicit a response of, of intellectual belief. It elicits a response of amazement, of wonder, of Peter going, like the, the, there, there's you know, come like we sang this morning. Come behold this wondrous mystery. There's a beholding that happens that that Christianity cannot just be intellectual assent where we know a lot of things about the Bible or about God or about faith. But Christianity is a faith in which we we marvel at the beauty of Jesus and what he has done. Peter marvels; he's amazed at who Jesus is and what he's done because he has risen. And here's what the gospel writers and the authors of the New Testament. Here's what they go on to say, and here's what history bears out. That from this moment, when the resurrection became a reality to them, that the earliest disciples, they immediately re-engaged with the message and the mission of Jesus. They immediately became followers again, because you follow someone who's alive. And everything changed. Everything changed. We asked the question at the beginning, you know, when we look at Easter, and we think about this, this timeline of events, what happened? Resurrection happened. That's what happened. As crazy as it is, it's actually what makes the most sense. The resurrection happened. How how is it that there were so many Christians living in Rome just a few decades after the death of Jesus that Nero could be like, it's their fault? Because resurrection happened and people told him. How is it that Nero's circus is no more and St. Peter's basilica is there? Because resurrection happened. How is it that the cross no longer represents Roman crucifixion and torture and violence but represents God's love and forgiveness? Because resurrection happened. How is it that my life personally has changed? I think about who I am and who I used to be and where I'm at now and the direction I'm going. It is so different. How does that happen? Not simply because I I believe in a religious tradition. It's not because I read about something in a book. It's because Jesus is alive and he's done something and doing something in my life. And that is the story for so many of you. That's been your reality, that you are different now. You can't imagine life without it. Because resurrection has happened. How is it possible? I mean, think, how is it even possible that in the midst of the chaos that we see around us, and honestly, it seems like the world is falling apart, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and everybody's angry, and everybody's hateful, and everybody has different solutions. How can you have peace in the middle of that? How can you have hope in the middle of that, freedom in the middle of that? How can you, how can you stare at the reality of death and say, that's coming for me someday? Everybody I know and everybody I love and yet I'm good. How is that possible? It's possible because resurrection happened. Because no matter where you're at, like it's not the end of the story. You see, this is what you know what Tacitus was writing, saying I, I said I love that, I love that description of Christianity, this mischievous superstition. This is the mischievous superstition that Tacitus wrote about. This is the mischievous superstition that broke out throughout the Roman Empire. Mischievous superstition was that these Christians believed and proclaimed that Jesus, their 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 crucified King, rose from the dead and that people saw him. And they took to the streets and started telling everyone. They went up to the very people who were responsible for killing Jesus and said, Hey, by the way, you killed him. God raised him. We've seen him. Do something about it. And thousands upon thousands, eventually upon millions and billions of people did. That's the message that changed the world. It is the gospel. The life death and resurrection of jesus the apostle paul writing to the church in corinth in the 50s early 50s 20 years after the death of jesus and his resurrection quotes a creed that most scholars date to somewhere in the year 30 to 35 a.d so like immediately after the events of jesus life death and resurrection the christians proclaim this message it's recorded for us in first corinthians paul says that christ this is the greek version of that word messiah it means king that our king died for our sins. That as human beings, we are messed up. I, 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 man, there are moments when I you know, turn that corner into the bathroom in the morning and look at that guy. I'm like, he's got issues. All of us do. Right? Like we, 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 the Bible calls it sins. when We do the things that we're not supposed to do and we don't do the things that we should do. And it's just, I unleash pain and evil and suffering on the world and you do it and I do it. And it all comes together and scripture says that sin that leads to death. Christ died for our sins. He died so that we did not have to. He was buried. That little detail that's like guys he's really dead. <laughs> like dead dead. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The grave could not hold him and he appeared. He appeared to a group of women early in the morning on the first day. Then he appeared to the disciples. And then he appeared to a larger group and a larger group. And eventually he appeared to a few hundred people at the same time. And they went around proclaiming that message. And it made its way around the Roman Empire. And the world changed. And my life changed. And so many of your lives have changed. And it has the power to change anybody's life. Those of you who are here who are watching, those in our communities and our friends and our neighbors, our family, the resurrection, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has the power to change us. The beautiful thing is the simplicity of it. It's like, hey, just trust him. That's literally all we have to do. He died, he lived, he died, he rose, we trust. And Paul, in Romans, he's actually writing to Christians living in the city of Rome during the time of Nero. When everything's falling apart, when, when they're, they're threat, their lives are threatened, they know people who are thrown into prison. They're coming out of all these different religious backgrounds and pagan religions, and they're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing. And, and Paul writes them and says, Hey, 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 here's, here's what it's all about. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that is, he is the King, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Be saved from your sin and your shame and your guilt, and the effects of evil. We'll be saved from death. Yes, it will be a part of your story, but it's just a pit stop on the way. You'll be saved. You'll experience the abundant life that Jesus offers. So let me just say, you know, you're here, you're watching. If you are a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, you guys, this is our hope. This is what we wake up to every day. This is what keeps us going. This is how we view work and how we view family and how we view our lives. and Everything that we do, it is through a resurrection lens. That evil and sin and pain and death do not have the final word as we, as we sang about this morning. That, that Jesus knocked down the gates of hell with one breath. As soon as he took that first breath after his death, it was all different. That's our hope. That's our hope. There is an enemy and there is pain, there is suffering, but all of that stands defeated. It is on borrowed time. Resurrection is coming for all of us. That's our hope. And listen, if you're not a Christian or follower of Jesus yet, that's your simple invitation. It's not crazy, it's not a high-pressure thing, it's just you are invited to trust in the crucified and risen Jesus. To Turn to him and say, you know what, I, I have sinned and I have messed up Jesus, I need you to save me. And then to trust and to follow him as king, the one who loves you, the one who died for you, and the one who has defeated death. That is what we proclaim, Pray, God, we thank you so much for this amazing truth. As hard as it is to believe, sometimes it seems so too good to be true. It is true. It is the truest thing about this thing that we call life. It is the anchor of our lives. It is the thing that steadies us. It is the thing that we hope in. It is your life, death, and resurrection, Jesus. God, I pray that we would be resurrection people, that we would be people that just, that we marvel at who you are. We marvel at your love. We marvel at your power that the resurrection of Jesus would inform everything about us, that we would trust that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead is living in us. God, for those who are on the fence, considering Christianity, or maybe it got one foot out the door, through the power of your spirit, would you reveal the beauty and the goodness and the truth of Jesus to them in this place? We pray all this in his name.